Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you all for coming. Um, this is Katie Winstitut's Hill Briefing entitled Reforming the U.S. Postal Service. I am Peter Russo. I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute. And I want to thank you all for staying inside on really is a beautiful day. Um, for those of you who don't want to tolerate the crowd, uh, this event is available at Cato.org events. It's live streaming there, so you can watch there. And if you are out there watching and not here, you can join the conversation at hashtag Cato events. Um, so the format today is we're going to have uh, each of our speakers, they'll speak for about 10 to 15 minutes, and then we'll leave time for Q&A at the end. And I want to just get started here right away. Um, Kevin Kozar first is a senior fellow and governance project director with the R Street Institute. Prior to joining R Street, Kozar was a research manager and analyst at the Congressional Research Service, where he advised members of Congress and committees on a range of legislative issues. He has testified before Congress and published reports and essays on education policy, quasi-governmental entities, privatization, and government communications. His work has appeared in scholarly and professional journals and in popular media, including Politico, Boston Herald, Daily Caller, and many others. He earned his master's and doctoral degrees in politics from New York University. And I should recommend to you, he wrote a wonderful article a little over a year ago called uh, Why I Left the CRS, which is a fascinating read. Uh, a little bit long, but fascinating. Uh, second, we'll have James Catuso. He is a senior research fellow at the Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. There he handles regulatory and telecommunications issues. His commentaries have appeared in outlets including the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the Los Angeles Times, and also many others. He received his law degree from the University of California at Los Angeles where he was a member of the UCLA Law Review, and he remains a member of the California and District of Columbia Bars. And finally, last but not least, Chris Edwards of the Cato Institute. There he is the Director of Tax Policy Studies, and he is the editor of downsizinggovernment.org. Edwards is a top expert on tax and budget issues who has testified to Congress on fiscal issues many, many times, and his articles have appeared in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and many other places. Uh, he is also the author, uh, author of Downsizing the Federal Government and co-author of Global Tax Revolution. Um, there are documents on the chairs. If you did not get one, you can go to Cato.org to get them. And with that, I am going to let's please welcome Kevin Kozar. Well, thank you all for turning out today. And um, let me first say something about the most important subject of the day, which is it's okay to wear Sears soccer any day of the week. <laughs> Don't believe people who say it's only limited to Thursdays. That's not true. It's just not. Um, so with that, let's move on. Um, yes, as you heard, I worked at CRS for over a decade, and postal work was a huge part of my portfolio. I had hundreds of questions coming in every year from congressional staff who were being besieged by constituents, uh, various interest groups with all sorts of bewildering questions, all the way down to little minutiae like, um, you know, the Postal Service won't deliver mail to me because they say my mailbox is not sufficient height off the ground. Are there regulations about this? To bigger things like how should the Postal Service fund its retiree health benefits, which is a many, many billion dollar question. So I put that out there just to say that if any of you have postal issues or questions and you want some help, look me up. I'm happy to help you. And of course, I'll help you on a confidential basis. Google me, Kevin Kosar at R Street, and you'll find me. So I'm supposed to talk a little bit about the Postal Service's history, its finances, and the kind of politics and efforts to reform. And I've got to keep it under 10 minutes, so I'm going to move at a quick clip. Uh, Postal Service has been around since before this country existed, um, although the form has changed. In the beginning, it was mostly a contract operation. If 
you wanted to be a postmaster and you had a tavern, well, you could be a postmaster. Or if you ran an inn or something like that, that's where postal services were delivered. There wasn't door-to-door -door or front-door delivery to everybody's home back then. Uh, it was a very different and very Spartan operation. Over time, it grew into a full-blown government department with many, many employees. And that model worked for a while, but then it broke to pieces in the 60s. Uh, there were wildcat labor strikes. Uh, there were work shutdowns. Uh, there was uh, financial losses. Congress was in the business each year of actually appropriating money to run the Postal Service, setting stamp prices, making determinations about who should be hired, how many people should be hired. It was way into the weeds in po postal operations. And having 535 people try to manage a government enterprise like that was just bound to fail eventually. So. 1970, 1971, we got the new Postal Service, which is basically a government corporation. It is designed to be self-funding. It gets hardly any government money, money uh, any taxpayer money. It's something like less than 1%. It's about 80 million a year, and the Postal Service's current budget is about 60 billion per year. It's supposed to be self-funding, and it's supposed to make all of its money through postage. Now, um, Unsurprisingly, uh, the Postal Service has, in recent years, fallen upon hard times. And as I look out there at the faces, many of you probably are saying, duh, how many of us mail stuff on a regular basis? Mail volume has dropped. And when mail volume drops, postage uh, earned drops. And since 2008, mail volume has gone down 25%. Postal Service is not into any other businesses than postage, for the most part. Um, so that revenue falls, and meanwhile, you have some huge fixed costs. The Postal Service, about 15 years ago, had 900,000 employees. It's managed through attrition and retirements to grind that down to around 450,000, um, which has helped its finances a bit, but it is continuing to lose money. Uh, in the first quarter of this year, it lost $2 billion. Um, a couple years ago, the Postal Service's financial situation was even more dire. It was down to about a billion dollars in cash on hand, which, do the math in your head, if you cost $60 billion to run your operations per year and you only have a billion in the bank, that runs the possibility of a liquidity crisis, a default, and having to turn off the lights. Thankfully, the Postal Service is in a little better financial condition right now. It has $6 billion in cash on hand, but that was produced largely by the Postal Service being allowed to increase postage rates. There was an exigent rate increase a couple years ago, and it's brought in approximately $4.6 billion in money that would not have otherwise been there. The Postal Service has also managed to uh, shore up its cash a bit by not paying into the Postal Service Retiree Health Benefits Fund. Each year it's supposed to be doing sort of what it does um, for its pensions, putting aside money based upon estimates of what the future uh, retirees are going to demand, and they're supposed to be doing this both for pensions and for health care costs. Well, they're doing it for pensions, but for health care costs, they've quit doing it. Um, they just haven't had the cash on hand. So on the one hand, great, we have more cash on hand at the Postal Service. On the other hand, there's this long-term liability, which is not fully funded. So. Uh, the Postal Service right now also uh, faces a sort of managerial challenge. By statute, it's supposed to have 11 members on its board. Remember, this is supposed to be kind of like a corporation. Two of those members are the Postmaster General, the CEO, basically, 
The other is the Deputy Postmaster General, who's the Deputy CEO, and the rest are nine governors who are appointed by the President and approved by the Senate. So nine-person board supposed to have diverse stakeholders, provide some oversight for the executives who run the business. That board is now down to one governor and the PMG and the deputy PMG. Um, the president has put forward any number of nominees. They've been cleared by Senate HISGAC, but votes have not been had on them. The word is, is that there is at least one or more senators who have a hold on them. So the Postal Service is in this bizarro situation where they're supposed to be a board overseeing its operations, and the board is one guy. And by the way, governors are not full-time employees. So effectively, it's the CEOs of the Postal Service who are running the, CEO, the Postal Service on their own with a very limited amount of oversight, and that's a problem. Now, you may have heard that there uh, have been two postal reform bills, naturally one in the Senate, one in the House, and they are relatively close to each other. Um, postal reform bills come very rarely. After the Postal Service uh, was created in the early 70s, there wasn't a Reform Act until 2006. And the reason for that is that postal politics are awful. I mean, and I say this to any of you who are going to get this issue in your portfolio, it is a really, really difficult issue because it's utterly pluralistic. Anytime you want to make a change to how the Postal Service does its business or what it's supposed to, you know, its very definition as an agency, somebody suffers. So you say, well, they're losing money, let's, lose, let's raise rates. Well, let's remember, they're also a monopolist for many of their products, and if you just let them raise rates, who's going to scream about that? The people who mail. If, on the other hand, you say, well, let's cut the size of the workforce, that'll decrease the cost. Well, then there are four different postal unions who are going to scream at you, and you're also going to hear from other groups, such as veterans, because many veterans find work with the U.S. Postal Service. So virtually every possible change you can look at to change the Postal Service, get rid of Saturday delivery, somebody is going to yell. And because the politics are so intensely pluralistic, it's difficult to make big changes. It's difficult to make visionary changes. One of the things I've been arguing for is that we really need to think about what a 21st century postal service would look like, or even do we need one? But questions of that level are just very difficult to take up in Congress. And so the postal bills you see now from the House and the Senate, um, God bless them, they have been working away at these things for years, but they're, they're not going to inspire anyone because they are um, incremental. They mostly aimed at trying to reduce the costs that the Postal Service currently bears so that the agency will uh, quit bleeding red. Um, a lot of stuff ends in the bill deals with pensions, retiree health benefit costs. I'm going to shift some folks onto Medicare, so that's a kind of shift a shift of cost to the rest of the government and taxpayers generally. They're going to let postage rates go up, possibly, uh, to bring a little more revenue in. but. Otherwise, the agency is pretty much going to be what it has been for the last 40, 50 years. Um, we could talk more about this during Q&A time. I've hit my 10-minute limit, and so let me turn it over to uh, James Catoso. What Kevin said. 
Uh, first off, uh, um, my condolences to those of you who have to stand. I'm told that you can write a letter if you want to to the Cato Institute. To, to, to just mail it in a few months. They'll get the message. Um, I want to start by thanking Benjamin Franklin for making this event possible. Uh, the post office he founded has long been the very definition of waste and inefficiency. All you have to do as a free market advocate is point out that sudden such a proposal uh, uh, to regulate, to, to have the government be active in an area is like the post office. And we've had a shared national experience with waste and inefficiency by having to go to the post office uh, for, for this, that, and the other thing. Uh, um, it, it, you know, in terms of rhetoric, in terms of, of making an argument, it, it's been a godsend to us. We are losing that shared national experience. We won't have the post office to kick around anymore if present trends continue. The postal service is disappearing. Uh, fewer and fewer Americans are captive to the post office. I just say the postal service. Uh, um, uh, many don't even use it at all. Uh, look at some of the numbers. First class mail is down by 40% in the last 10 years. Um, letters, to, uh, correspondence, letters to friends and relatives, uh, just uh, simple correspondence, has disappeared long ago, down 80% since 1987. Holiday cards, Christmas cards, uh, um, Easter cards, I suppose, down 30% since 2012, 30% in four years. Now, for some reason, non-holiday cards are, are, haven't dropped yet. I don't know why. Uh, but uh, Christmas cards apparently taking a big hit. Americans are paying their bills online. So transaction mail has, has been plummeting. Only about a third of bills are paid by mail. Two-thirds are paid by electronic means. Um, for some reason, well, I, I can understand this, but one of the last redoubts of, of mail is bill presentment. People are paying their bills online, but they still want them to arrive by mail. Um, I, I think they, 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 they quite, aren't quite comfortable yet with getting the bill by mail. There may be some feeling that, that they want the bills to arrive slowly and the payments to get out fast. But um, uh, th if that bill presentment category starts to erode away, the Postal Service will be on a much faster decline. Um, the only growth area is package delivery. Uh, although that's good news until you realize the competition the Postal Service faces in package delivery from UPS, FedEx, and Amazon, who's getting into the business directly. So why do we care? I mean, the, it's not the only, the Postal Service is not the only enterprise that, that's been hit by the digital revolution. Um, we, we didn't show any tears for Kodak. Uh, borders came and went. Uh, why, don't, why can't we just let the Postal Service sink and move on? Well, that'd be nice, but it, unfortunately, it's too big to ignore. Um, picture it this way. The Postal Service, I think, is the Hindenburg. It's hovering over New Jersey. It's in trouble. Our job is to keep it from falling on the towns and villagers below. Um, you can do that in a number of ways. Uh, uh, the, the, the postal management, I think, understands this. And they're, they're cutting, trying to cut, 
trying to shrink this this, this business uh, so that if it does collapse, they, they wouldn't put it this way, but, but I, I, if it does collapse, there'll be less of a fallout. Um, the problem with that, Congress doesn't want them to cut. At every turn, the uh, um, ideas for cutting back service to put expenses in the line with revenues has been slowed down, blocked, uh, um, um, countered by Congress. Five-day delivery of mail, cutting out Saturday delivery, blocked. Closing down post offices, blocked. Shutting processing centers, blocked. Now, when you've lost 40% of your first-class mail, you've lost 25% of your total volume, something has to go. Uh, um, the Congress is not allowing any of that to get through. Now, the, the, the reasons are clear, and you guys working on the Hill, you, you know what it is. No one gets credit for cutting out postal services, even if it was absolutely clear, and I think it is, but as clear as anything can be, that, that it's needed, uh, you don't get credit for it. Congressmen get credit for saving the local postal service, po po post office. Um, you, you look at the, the coverage in media of postal issues. The national news covers the shrinkage of mail, the financial troubles of the Postal Service. Every local story I've ever seen on the Postal Service talks about saving a post office. That, that, that's all you hear at the local level. Uh, even though maybe no one has ever gone to that post office, maybe they had eight people in a week, that's not what's heard at the local level. Um, so, facing that uh, reality, it, it's a miracle that the Postal Service has been able to keep its expenses one step ahead of, of, the, of the financial grim reaper, you might say. Um, but transforming the Postal Service into something that might survive is a lot more than just cutting. Here comes the hard part. It needs to be innovative. It needs to come up with new ideas. The, the, the environment has changed. The Postal Service has to change with it. Um, this is not new. Lots of companies have been through this. Western Union no longer delivers telegrams. They're a money order company. Fujifilm, once a leading film manufacturer, no longer is in the film business. It's a chemical company. Um, um, UPS, USPS should be pursuing innovative solutions like this. Now, at this point, I know you probably think, well, give me some ideas about what they are. Well, that's the tough part. Uh, you need an entrepreneur to come up with innovation. If, if I knew the answer, it wouldn't be innovative, frankly. <laughs> so, sorry. I, I would be investing in the market. Uh, but people have suggested advertising. All right. Putting signs on trucks might, might help, not the full answer. Real estate, I think Kevin's written on this, that, that there's vast amounts of real estate in downtown areas held by the Postal Service. That, that, that's uh, um, a, a potential source of revenue. Uh, banking, well, there's, there, there's a problem in a nutshell. Lots of people think banking is the solution. The problem is it's also very risky. So how do you 
handle that risk by letting the Postal Service go into, into, into financial services. Now, for the record, I, I'm personally very skeptical of financial services as a postal product. Uh, frankly, going up against not just banks, but Walmart in basic financial services is, doesn't seem to be a good proposition for the Postal Service with its problems. Um, people talk about the unserved banking population, but um, most people from the series I've seen do not have a bank account because they don't want one. They don't see the purpose in it. It's not that they don't have a bank nearby. There are many more banks than there are post offices. But with that aside, say they want to get, get into a, a field like that, how do you do it? They have to use their own money or private investors' money. They should not, in any, in any circumstance, be allowed to use public money, including the Postal Service finances. There's no money there to start with. Um, so in order to get the Postal Service innovating, trying out new fields, you need to separate it from government. I don't see any other way of doing that. It needs to withdraw from government, and the government needs to withdraw from the Postal Service. It's a Brexit for the Postal Service. In fact, I have a name for it that maybe you can help me get, get it in general circulation. It should be a postal exit or a post-it. <laughs> now, some might call this privatization, Chris. Um, but I, I think that's become a loaded term. It is privatization, privatization. It is using private sector resources, private sector money. But I think that by using a different term, whatever it is, um, it, it actually gets the point across more clearly without the, the loaded connotations that, that, that are, are accompany the, the, the term. The, the, the point is this is not just some libertarian ideological point. This is common sense, practical reality. The Postal Service needs to dump its government ties. Those ties include not just investing with public money, but the informal advantages that come with being part of the government. As separate as they may be for their books, as much as they, they, they point to the lack of appropriations, and they, they are self-sustaining on a year-to-year -year basis, everyone knows that if they get in trouble, if, if they do collapse, the government will come to their, their rescue, or at least pay out to clean up the mess afterwards. That skews their decision making. That gives them an unfair advantage, an inefficient advantage, over others trying to operate in the same fields. So, so that has to be ended, a clear separation made before these uh, advances to other fields take place. Um, then, of course, not to downplay this, but the formal limits on competition, the private ex express statutes, the, one of the only laws still in existence that make it a crime to compete for uh, in providing a product or a service to the public are unjustifiable and need to be eliminated. Um, this would be a tough nut to crack, 
not the, it, it, this is probably one of the, the most protected areas of the Postal Service. Um, but, but it's not just a matter of giving them an advantage. It cuts the whole class of entrepreneurs out. No one can challenge the way the Postal Service is doing things. That doesn't just hurt the entrepreneurs. It doesn't just hurt the consumer, but it hurts the Postal Service. One of the ways you find out about better ways to, to, to make a mousetrap is to have someone else try it, look at the marketplace, and then you follow their ideas. That's how information gets discovered in the marketplace, one of the ways. Uh, by, by banning that competition, the Postal Service is deprived of that information. Um, so, to conclude, I, I don't mean to sound Pollyanna-ish. Um, uh, this is not an easy uh, set of reforms to, to adopt. If we do succeed in protecting the taxpayer from a postal collapse, it's going to be through baby steps, half measures, a lot of things that, that don't quite get there, uh, uh, um, uh, certainly don't get all the way there, but it gets a little bit at a time. And the most important thing is that the, the reforms I'm talking about give us a roadmap of where we should be going. And without that roadmap, we're, we're, we're going in the wrong direction. So with that, I'll stop. Thank you very much, uh, James. Uh, so at the risk of offending James, I'm going to use the, the P word, privatization, uh, not just once, but uh, over and over in my comments uh, this morning. Uh, but let me, let me put USPS privatization into the broader context, what I call the global privatization revolution, which is the topic of the new Cato study that was uh, handed out, I think, on your uh, chairs uh, this morning. Uh, so what do I mean by the global privatization revolution? Well, since Margaret Thatcher came to office back in 1979, thousands and thousands of companies worth over $3 trillion have been privatized around the world, uh, airlines and utilities, energy companies, and all kinds of other stuff, and postal services have been privatized in many countries. So interestingly, Margaret Thatcher uh, actually shied away from privatizing the Royal Mail in Britain. She, she chickened out. It was too politically sensitive. <clears throat> but as Britain during the 1980s and 90s privatized more and more stuff, they realized, you know, it works. It increases efficiency and improves customer service. And that's why centrist Prime Minister David Cameron in 2013 uh, was able to go ahead and privatize the Royal Mail. Because Britain had this experience with privatization, they knew it wasn't radical, they knew it would work, and they knew it would improve uh, service. In this country, privatization still seems uh, very radical. Uh, to members of Congress, but that's because we have little experience with it. Other countries have privatized many things that the government still runs in this country. We've got a government postal system, a government air traffic control system, a government passenger rail service, a number of uh, federal government electric utilities like the TVA. All those things have been privatized in Britain and lots of other countries. So what are the advantages of privatization? <clears throat> well, first, an obvious one, increased efficiency. Uh, there's actually been hundreds of studies done across many countries that I summarized uh, in the new report 
uh, that look at businesses before they were privatized and look at businesses after they were privatized. And the results really are uh, clear privatization uh, substantially increases business efficiency. Uh, one reason is there's a, uh, generally a great increase in labor productivity. Government enterprises tend to have uh, very bloated workforces. And so you can see with privatization and competition in European postal systems, which I'll, I'll discuss, uh, workforces were greatly slashed and, and worker productivity uh, increased substantially. Privatization will take politics uh, out of uh, business. Uh, as James noted, uh, the USPS mail volume has dropped 40 percent over the last decade. There's an interesting statistic that the, the bottom 4,000 post office locations in the United States only average four customers a day. There's 4,000 post offices out there that only get four customers a day. It's crazy. They ought to be closed, obviously, but because the USPS uh, is a government-owned uh, entity, uh, Congress micromanages uh, and prevents uh, those sorts of rational business decisions. Uh, privatization would level the playing field. The USPS uses its earnings on its monopoly products to subsidize its competition uh, against Federal Express and UPS uh, and package uh, and overnight, uh, the overnight delivery businesses. But the USPS pay, pays no property tax, it pays no income uh, tax, it gets other sorts of subsidies. So that sort of competition is very unfair uh, to Federal Express. The USPS, by the way, it hides those uh, cross-subsidies in very opaque accounting. So an advantage of privatization would not only be to level the playing field, what to be, what, what, but would be to make uh, postal accounting and pricing much more transparent. Let me uh, mention uh, some of the postal reforms abroad. Uh, other countries uh, have been opening their postal systems to competition and privatizing them as well. Uh, there's a group called the Consumer Postal Council that puts out an index of postal freedom, and they rank United States near the bottom of 26 countries that they looked at. The European Union has pushed deregulation of, of postal systems since the 1990s, and that culminated in what they call a directive or a, a uh, requirement that all postal services in Europe be open for competition, wide open for competition, uh, by 2012, and that has happened. So some countries in Europe still have government systems, but another, a number of countries like Britain, Germany, uh, Portugal, the Netherlands have privatized their postal uh, systems. So what does that mean in practice? Uh, progress towards competition at the ground level has, has been modest um, so far. There are a number of countries uh, like Sweden and Germany where there are a few dozen uh, new competitors who are going after the dominant postal companies in sort of certain niches like business to business mail uh, or advertising bulk mail. Uh, so this is, but that's progress. It's, it's, it's small, but uh, we're, we're getting more and more competition all the time. Uh, in some European countries, there's, there's been private competitors who have entered who have just uh, uh, attacked the dominant provider in certain cities or certain uh, uh, regions of, of countries. Uh, if you're interested more in that, the European Union on its webpage did a very good study last year looking at competition across its 27 member nations. Uh, some of the, uh, the data it found were that in about a dozen European Union countries, new competitors uh, have a greater than 5 percent uh, market share in the letter market, and there's a handful of countries where competitors have grabbed 10 to 20 percent of market share for letters. Uh, so we're, we're, we're starting to get some uh, real competition here. 
Now, postal services may have some natural monopoly element, and I don't know the optimal structure of the U.S. postal uh, market, but I do know that the U.S. Uh, system where we put a straitjacket on competition, where we enforce a monopoly, uh, makes no sense. As James touched on, we ought to let entrepreneurs uh, take a crack at postal services uh, like they are doing in Europe. Uh, the Wall Street Journal had an interesting story a couple uh, years ago that they profiled two uh, young entrepreneurs in Texas. Uh, they made a deal with a local USPS manager uh, to set up shop in the uh, local USPS office. Uh, they would make uh, contracts with households to scan their mail and email it to them. They did, were doing this for a few months, and I don't know whether it would have been successful uh, in the long run, but as soon as USPS headquarters in Washington heard about it, uh, they put the kibosh on it, they, they stopped it uh, in its tracks. So monopolies prevent experimentation, which is what we need uh, in postal markets. So how do we reform the USPS? Uh, one option is partial privatization. Uh, there's been a number of scholars. Uh, there's a scholar at Brookings, for example, who've written that what we ought to do is we ought to keep uh, the government USPS uh, just to deliver sort of the final mile uh, uh, to uh, all U.S. households to provide universal service, but then open up the rest of the system, open up the collection and transportation and sorting of mail uh, to private enterprise. So that would be um, progress. Uh, but Europe, uh, Europe's reforms show the full privatization is possible. Now, USPS supporters uh, argue that uh, you know rural areas in the United States would be left behind if you were to privatize the postal system and open it up to competition. And actually, there's some economists argue that that's not true. They argue that in fact rural delivery can be just as cost effective. You can earn as much profits on that as you can uh, with urban delivery. So there actually may be no reason for special protections uh, for rural uh, postal routes. Uh, so in Europe, uh, so here's how uh, things have developed in Europe. Europe, the European Union requires universal postal service in all its member nations. Countries designate a, uh, their dominant carrier, like in Germany, it's Deutsche Post, uh, must provide universal service to all households. That primary, uh, that universal service provider calculates what they call a net cost of how much additional does it cost them to deliver to every household. Then the governments can provide a direct subsidy to the company to do that. Um, so that sort of levels the playing field. They re re Deutsche Post is required to deliver to all households. If it costs them extra money, the government can give them a subsidy. Now, the European Union actually calculates, though, that that extra subsidy really only averages about 5% of revenues. So universal service, uh, you don't really need much of a subsidy to uh, make it happen, if any subsidy at all. And here's the important thing uh, for the United States in this. Defenders of the status quo in the United States say that we must give USPS a legal monopoly on all mail in order to guarantee universal service. Europe proves that that is not true. European countries have universal service, uh, but they also have, they are also open to competition and they allow and indeed encourage privatization. We don't need a monopoly to uh, have universal service in the United States. I also think we ought to narrow the definition of universal service uh, as they have done in Europe. Uh, most European countries uh, don't, uh, require less than uh, six days uh, a week of uh, delivery. Uh, many European countries exclude bulk mail and advertising mail, uh, which clogs your mailbox from universal service. Uh, some countries uh, have uh, what are called cluster boxes. Rather than delivery to every address, they just have uh, neighborhood uh, mailboxes, which uh, lowers costs. Uh, 
I'd actually, you know, in, an, in the email uh, and internet world we live in, I question whether we need a so-called universal service requirement at all. Uh, as James touched on, if you look at USPS data, household-to-household -household, uh, letters are down to just 3% of the total mail volume today. Uh, advertising mail is 60% uh, of everything that comes to your post, uh, postal box. And two-thirds of bill payments are now electronic, and that, and that figure is increasing uh, every year. So to conclude, Congress is essentially imposing a rigid monopoly on our uh, mail system, essentially just so that we can continue receiving junk mail in our mailboxes six days a week. To me, it makes no sense. I think the USPS uh, ought to be privatized and ought to be opened to competition. Uh, I would suggest, by the way, for further reading, we have a, a nice essay on our Downsizing Government website on how to privatize the post office. And uh, I came across in my research an interesting essay uh, done 15, 16 years ago by Jared Polis, who's a representative, a Democrat from Colorado, uh, who at the time was uh, just a private citizen. He did an excellent essay on how to privatize the U.S. Postal Service and open it up uh, to competition. Polis, I understand, is a moderate Democrat, but he makes the case for radical reform in this article. If you can Google, Google and find that essay. It's a very good, uh, it's a very good takeoff point to learn about postal privatization. Thank you very much, and I think we can uh, open up to questions now.